We are going to continue our series on the spiritual disciplines. This will be our second to last evening spent on the spiritual disciplines. So um, as I said on the first night, these that we are covering within this series are by no means the only spiritual disciplines. There are a variety of disciplines or even more, as I've told you multiple times and we'll reference again this evening about Richard Foster's book on the disciplines. He covers more even within his book than we will be covering. Um, and I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the distinctions uh, that are made between certain disciplines in terms of them being inner disciplines or outer disciplines or corporate disciplines. Um, but we tried to kind of bunch them together so that they would have a lot of interplay with one another. There is a relationship between the two disciplines that we talk about this evening, but they are fairly different in their expression. Whereas we're going to be covering study and we're going to be covering confession. Uh, study is typically seen much more as like a personal discipline, something that you do, though you could do it um, corporately, you could do it with other people. Um, but when it comes down to it, uh, Confession requires more than just the one person. So I'll try to build a, a bridge between the two, um, but don't necessarily look for a ton of interplay between uh, each of these disciplines. We're just bunching them together for the sake of our convenience because we have only one more week in which we're going to cover the disciplines that we chose to cover. So that being said, we're going to uh, work with study first. Uh, let's look at the biblical information of study, and let, we're going to start with the most important verse. Um, go ahead and open up to Romans 12. You're probably very familiar with this. If you... Um, have been formally discipled or went through Awana in some way, uh, in some way, shape, or form, most likely somebody will have encouraged you to have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, after, after Paul has spent 11 chapters um, talking about the righteousness of God and how uh, Jesus Christ provides that righteousness to us, he transitions in chapter 12 to verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Another way of saying that word that's translated spiritual worship. Welcome, welcome. Come join us. Uh, another, another way, uh, and some of your versions may have, which is your reasonable act of worship. I like that translation a little bit better because I... Um, I, I can see Paul saying the only thing that would be reasonable based on what I've just unfurled for you for 11 chapters would be that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So if you are a thinking person while you read scripture, the most appropriate question to then uh, the most appropriate question to verse one is how, how should I offer my body as a living sacrifice? Verse two provides the answer. Do not be conformed to this world. Perfect. Look different, right? Look different. Is that enough? No. It's not enough. Especially since we realize that the harder sometimes we try to be different, the more we realize that we're just the same as everybody else. That's why Paul starts giving us some tips. First tip, be transformed by the renewal 
of your what? The renewal of your mind. Philosophers can spend weeks talking about what it means uh, what it means to have a mind, what the mind is, the relationship of the mind to the body. We are not going to spend weeks talking about that. Uh, we're, I want to show you this verse and the logical flow of thought that Paul has as, ways, as our way of introducing the concept of study. That Paul said the only thing that's reasonable, the only thing that makes sense in light of the righteousness of God as I've explained it to you in the first 11 chapters is for you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How? To look different than the world. And in order to do that, our minds need to be transformed. Transformation occurs through the renewal of the mind. Um, there we go. That's the first blank. Transformation occurs through the renewal of the mind. We're not going to cover, um, we're not going to cover in detail all of the passages that way, but I do want to show another passage real quickly uh, that I want to pull apart. Philippians 4.8 is another relevant passage that we should look at when it comes to the idea of the transforming of the mind. As we try to pursue from our God, what's it look like for our mind to be transformed? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, he, uh, he says this in verse 8. Finally, okay, so he's now finishing up the things that he wanted to say to the church at Philippi. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Though we are not covering meditation this evening, we have covered meditation, my encouragement to you would be to meditate on this verse, to spend some time meditating on this verse. There is a wealth of information that's here. But a couple of points that I want to pull out here. That Philippians 4.8, Paul encourages us to think of point one, that which is true. Jesse mentioned today that we are surrounded in a world that doesn't even know truth if it smacks them in the face. We, we've got so many. That, that's why that, that is Satan's main weapon to use against us is falsehood. And we are surrounded by it. That's why we must, we must think on that which is true. Number two, we must think on that which is honorable. Not just things that are true, but things that are honorable. There are a variety of ways that we, we spend our mental energies from day to day. Aren't there? I've been, I was talking to Wayne before we started this evening um, I've been working on one of my cars to try to get it back on the road, and I have a tendency to think a lot about that project. What did I do wrong? What, what pitfall have I not fallen into? And I'm not saying that thinking about that stuff is altogether wrong, but I ask myself, if I'm looking to live a life that lacks anxiety, am I filling my mind with my to-do list, or am I filling my mind with things that are true and honorable. Those things will probably start to allow me to enjoy the freedom that is mine in Christ. Okay, that is also true. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, that's the truth. If you don't want the anxiety, don't work on cars. Yeah, but then I get anxiety for not being able to, yeah. Then I can't feed my kids, so yeah. Point three, we are also to think on that which is just. That which is just. We live in a world that is without righteousness. And though uh, I would really love to spend a lot of time talking about the idea of justice and righteousness as it is presented by Paul and as it is presented elsewhere in Scripture, it has such a wide range of meanings that sometimes can be easily simplified as just thinking about things that are right as opposed to thinking about things that are wrong. The world doesn't even know how to think about things that are right. But do you see the progression of these things as Paul is now unfolding them? We're not going to do this with every single one that he lists. But first, we focus on the truth. Then we focus on things that are honorably true. And then we focus on those things that are honorably true that bring right and goodness and justice to all, ourselves and to others. See how Paul is starting to build this in his list. Look at point C, you see a quote from, from Richard Foster. Many Christians remain in bondage to fears and anxieties simply because they do not avail themselves of the discipline of study. Jesus made it unmistakably clear, and here Foster will give us another passage that's relevant. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Good feelings will not free us. Ecstatic experiences will not free us. Getting, quote, high on Jesus will not free us. Without a knowledge of the truth, we will not be free. The renewal of our mind requires knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth requires pursuit of the truth. And once we have pursued it, it requires us to actually work with it mentally in our minds. Study allows us to expose ourselves to truth. Actually, I think I should probably say first, study exposes our wrong ideas that we've been camping on for a really long time. Then exposes those wrong ideas to accuracy and to truth. Then continuing with that, that will lead us to some freedom. So what does it look like for us to study? I spent a lot of time and money trying to figure out how to be a good student. That's actually um, one of the key components of college that most kids today do not understand. Please join me in the war of helping kids understand the point of college. The point of college is not to teach them what to think, but how to think not what type of person to become, but to become a good person or to build character. This, this is an idea that's being lost. And the, I, but you don't need to go to college to get that type of experience. You can have that type of experience as guided by the Holy Spirit through the discipline of study. What it takes, and you'll see that this applies in a variety of different ways, what it takes, it takes essentially is three main components. So if we were to look at study formally and say, what's it take to study something? There are three main steps. Step one, step A on your note sheet here. Steps to study. A, first is concentration. And this is probably where it all falls apart. <laughs> right? Because that's kind of the first thing that we need. But this may be the, the most difficult step especially if you have not disciplined yourself and allowed God to use 
the process of study. This is something, this is a skill that we develop. We grow in our ability to concentrate over time. Now, concentration may, may look different for different people. I personally cannot, cannot concentrate with music on in the background. I can concentrate with lots of other things going on in the background. It doesn't have to be completely quiet for me, but I love music so much that I cannot do anything when there's music playing. Uh, I just, I focus too much on the music. There are other people, they need that music to be able to, to study. I, I'm not sure what that looks like or why that is, but that's what people, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. I can't empathize with it, but I, I have been told that that's the case, and I don't think that there's anything necessarily unholy in one way or the other. Um, however, you do need to try to figure out what's it going to look like to concentrate to, to whatever it takes to drown out the other things that you might expend your mental energies on and to focus singularly on a subject, to work singularly with that subject, which is very hard. I, I imagine I've not experienced life as a mother, but I know that that mothers have a tendency to multitask the heck out of life, right? So you might be concentrating on one thing, but you're also remembering the other four things that you need to do. I know that this is something that my wife experiences all the time, so I'm learning through her. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but that, that makes it difficult to concentrate on times. Trying to, so you got to figure out some tools that, you could, uh, tools that you could use. If you're one who's easily distracted or you're afraid you're going to forget something, then have another notepad next to you and as those ideas pop into your head of the other things that you need to do while you were trying to concentrate, jot them down. You'll, that way you won't forget them for later and then go back to concentrating on what you were concentrating on. I've, I've heard people saying that, hello. hello. I've heard people say that like um, people that are struggling with sleeping. That's where that idea was first introduced to me. Like they're having a hard time falling asleep and they keep thinking of all the things that they need to get done the next day. They write those things down and that allows themselves to kind of forget them. Concentrating, that could, that's the first necessary step. Once you have exposed yourself to the necessary concentration, you have step B. Now we've got to get to comprehension, okay? Notice the subtle difference. Go, think back to Jesus' words. Did Jesus say the truth will set you free? No Knowing the truth will set you free. I can all day long tell you the right answers to things. That may not change your thinking at all. Why not? Because you have not yet exposed yourself, not just in a cursory sense, but directly with concentration to that idea and allow that idea to start shaping your mind. Allow God to take hold of your mind with that idea. Not just the truth, but knowledge of the truth is what is going to set us free. And we cannot rush through this step. This can take some time. This, especially in a culture where we're kind of used to talk radio or news shows or whatever the case is, typically the format of those shows is to throw an idea out there and immediately start combating the idea. The problem with that is that you don't slow down enough to concentrate on the idea and ensure that you really understand the idea to begin with. 
And as a result, you end up disagreeing with something that's not even really being discussed. You have to be clear on what the idea is. Make sure that you're comprehending that which you have concentrated on before you move on. Okay? And sometimes you need to consult other resources. Like when I'm preparing, for instance, um, when I'm studying a passage of scripture to then teach a large group of people, I will almost always read some commentaries because what I'm looking for is the reality that there are other people who are led by the Spirit that have also thought about this te text deeply. And I want to make sure that my idea didn't somehow go in some completely wrong direction because of my own personal hobby horse. Did I miss the point because I was going off this way? Let me compare what I feel like this text is saying with other people who have been following Christ and studying his word for a long time. So some, don't be afraid to reach out to other resources when it comes time to ensure you've comprehended the idea. But finally, if you are actually going to study something, it must finish with some type of reflection. Reflection. You've concentrated on the idea. Now you've comprehended the idea. But now you must reflect on the idea. And reflection kind of has two forms. You have to, uh, th this is where um, when we talk about the study of scripture, people will often talk about like the application. And that, that's helpful. But at the same time, uh, there's going to be certain things that are not necessarily relevant to your specific circumstances, right? I mean, if you study algebra, that may not necessarily change your life in terms of your direct application. I'm sure a mathematician might argue with me right now. But the, the point is, it may not necessarily, by ini your initial concentration and comprehension, lead to some direct application. But reflection also has to carry with it the idea of you recognizing its significance. Significance is the key word. It's not always going to be about your personal application. Think about this. Sometimes when you study the character and the attributes of God, right, you, will, you have a tendency to study those things and then look for how is that relevant. But there's, please do not miss the reality that sometimes it is important for you to study the character of God just to recognize the significance of who God is. That may not have direct relevance to your immediate circumstances, but for you to expose yourself to the reality of God's character and to think about how that is significant to how God interacts with the world, though it may not directly affect you right now in the five minutes that you're thinking about it, long term, that's transforming your mind such that you can more accurately perceive what's going on around you. Does that make sense? So those are kind of the three key components to studying anything. So that then leads us to ask the question, okay, well then what would we study? Ah, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Step one, okay? Let's make sure that we understand that probably your most valuable tool as a spiritual discipline is the study of Scripture, the study of Scripture. And what I would like to do is just take a moment and differentiate study of Scripture versus meditation on Scripture. Because we've talked about meditation on Scripture. We haven't talked about study. 
And the two can easily go hand in hand. Don't get me wrong that if you're doing one, you can't do the other. But sometimes we have a tendency to just do one and not the other. And where, at least in my personal experience, I can't necessarily speak for everybody, but in my personal experience, the more effort I put into learning how to study scripture, the more rich my meditation on scripture became. Not everybody is afforded the same possibilities to be able to study as effectively as others, right? Like, people are confused about ideas of intelligence. You, you can't change your intelligence, right? Your intelligence is just kind of always about the same. You can definitely fill your head with a whole lot more knowledge, and people will perceive that that means that you're more intelligent. But uh, they make movies about this all the time, right? These people that are, like, working as a janitor, but, like, they... They have all of this natural intelligence to just immediately solve some type of mathematic problem that presents themselves. We, we know that this is deeply true. People just kind of get confused by it. Oh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that not everybody is going to be able to so richly study Scripture because some of that will be based upon your level of intelligence. Some people, like, you, I don't know if you know um, D.A. Carson. He's a super smart guy. He's one of these guys that's like so smart, he's actually a little weird when you talk to him. You know these guys? Um, and he's, I mean, don't get me wrong, he's a really nice guy, but he's like genius level when it comes to intelligence. His study of scripture will always go beyond what I'm capable of because his intelligence is beyond my own. But that being said, God can still use the meditation and your efforts to study on scripture regardless of what level he has given you to work with, and it still is something that you can grow in. Both skills are something that you can grow in. So just real quickly, what's the main difference? The study of scripture essentially is working, the fancy word is exegesis, exegesis, which is E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, um, exegesis, which is uh, essentially a fancy word for trying to say, what is the correct interpretation of scripture. And there are a variety of ways that Christians, that our brothers and brothers and sisters, um, believe that scripture ought to be interpreted. Our church officially, actually kind of unofficially, holds uh, what's known as a historical, uh, literal interpretation uh, of, the, of the scripture, which basically just means we believe that the pages of scripture were written by a specific person to a specific audience for a specific reason, okay? That's the, that's the simplest thing. The, the pages of scripture are written by a, by a specific person to a specific group of people for a specific reason. The exegetical process, the interpretational process is the goal of trying to understand who was the person, who were the people that received it, and why was it being written so that we can understand what the text means. Instead of me looking at it and go, well, here's what I think the text means, right? I, I don't care what you think the text means when it comes time to study scripture. What I want to understand is what did the author mean? What was the original intent of the author of the pages of scripture? That's what the interpretation and exegetical process looks like when you're studying scripture. But when it comes down to meditation on scripture, though our study of scripture can inform our meditation, we're not necessarily too freaked out about having to just absolutely nail the perfect meeting because it's a personal, 
usage of Scripture in your relationship with God. I'm not going to recover all of the information that we talked about in the meditation. I'll refer you back to meditation on Scripture, and we talked about that as a discipline. But can you see, um, can you tell me by the nodding of head that you can kind of see the difference of what the study of Scripture would be versus the meditation of Scripture? One clearly can inform the other, and they can be done together, but there is a difference between the two of them. Okay, so then that being said, there's other stuff to study too, right? Study of Scripture, definitely worth doing, definitely something that we should devote some time to. But real quickly, let's go over some other just quick ideas that would still be valuable when it comes to spiritual disciplines. Probably the second most valuable thing to do as a Christian would be the study of devotional literature, the study of devotional literature. And here's where we have a little bit more space um, to kind of recognize the way that God made us, what our strengths and weaknesses are. There are going to be people who are going to think that author X is the absolute best author ever, and they love everything that author X writes, and other people will tell you that author X is a waste of your time, when I, the first time that I taught through a series on the spiritual disciplines, I even like threw some names out there, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the, maybe, it's, yeah, maybe it's because I've gotten a little bit older and wiser or more diplomatic. or I'm not sure. The point is, there is good Christian literature out there, and there's a lot of bad Christian literature out there. It is important that you recognize that just because something is produced by a Christian publisher does not make it worth reading, okay? There's a lot of stuff out there that is not really even good for propping up your wobbly table. Instead, here would be my goal to you, or, or just a, a, general, um, a general suggestion if you're trying to figure out what to read. If you're trying to figure out what to read, go as old as you can comprehend. I'm not saying that the old stuff is, even, is better than the new stuff, because sometimes new stuff can be great. But if it has stood the test of time and they're still printing it, there's probably something there. Right, but Oswald Chambers, he's new. That's right. He's new stuff, right? I mean, he's only within the last... 100 years. Yeah, that's, when it comes to historical... Uh, literature, 100 years, that's like teenage, teenage years right there, right? It's still, but let's be honest, maybe reading Oswald, there are just some people that are not at that place yet. You know, they're not, that's a little bit too flowery. The, the, the wording, I can't get a whole lot out of it. I would encourage you, push a little bit into that zone and try to work with that. But the older that you can get, you know, I... If it's been around for a while, there's probably a reason it's been around for a while. And if you're looking for suggestions of things to study, the, your pastors, elders, Christian friends are really good resources in terms of stuff that's out there. Um, but rarely are you going to, this, this happens to me pretty frequently, people will come to me and be like, Brad, I know that you read, you're a guy that reads, have you read X? And Almost inevitably, X will be something that came out within the last couple of years. Be like, no, I, I'm still trying to work through stuff that was written like 200 years ago. Like, I, I just, I don't, I, I haven't had a lot of time for X yet. Well, I'm not looking for qualify or disqualify. I'm saying based, based, based on how you. No, here's my point. Here's my point. 
hear me clearly. I'm not saying that if it's old, it's great, and if it's new, it's not. I'm saying push, push towards the older, right? I mean, there are, there are people um, that are looking for what to read. I will inevitably push them closer to C.S. Lewis than I would something that was written within the last 10 years, right? Because it, part of it is because C.S. Lewis was brilliant and etc., etc. But I'm not, newer stuff is good. One of the most formative people in my life who I literally have exchanged no more than 10 words of greeting with I'm looking forward to spending a few millennia with him uh, in the next stage, but is Dallas Willard. He's within like the last 25 years, certainly worth your time, uh, but he's fairly new. And he would tell you, don't read my stuff, read, read the other stuff, but I would tell you, read his stuff, it's worth reading. Yeah, but it's the general principle of look for the stuff that stood the test of time. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried uh, on the opposite side. There are times when I was, you know, trying to work my way through um, Augustine stuff and it was, it's hard stuff. It took a while, right? That's okay. That's okay. This is something in which we grow. The discipline of study is something in which we grow in skill. It doesn't mean that you're going to pick it up and immediately be interested in it, but continue to try to allow the Holy Spirit to push you and grow you uh, through your efforts in this. Um, then quickly, the final three points that I want to make on study. Uh, there's just the study of other fields. I think it's important that we recognize that there is spiritual value in studying other things, in studying biology, in studying... I, I have a friend who uh, is, a, is a mathematician, and he has spent years studying math. And I will never forget the conversation that I had with him as I was kind of growing in this idea of the spiritual discipline of study. When I asked him, why, why would you devote so much time to studying this obscure mathematical concept? And he said, I study it because it's beautiful. And initially you would look at that and go, there's a lot of beautiful stuff out there, right? <laughs> But remember that passage from Philippians where we're looking, at, we're looking for things that are true and we're looking for things that are beautiful and honorable and we're looking, exposing our minds to those things exposes us to a corner of God's nature that we wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. There's value in studying things other than scripture and devotional literature. I think one thing Jesse said this morning comes in here. He's talking about all good gifts come down from above from the Father of lights. Well, I'm also of the opinion that all truth is God's truth. And so the mathematician, that's God's truth. Yeah, absolutely. And the biology, that's God's truth. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, we need to stop being afraid of things like, I'm not saying that you, you people are, but Christians are often accused of being afraid of science, that somehow if, if we study science that it's going to disprove Christianity, which nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, philosophy when done well, science when done well, theology when done well, all of it will lead us to an accurate understanding of, uh, of God. Next, um, the study of culture and the study of other people. It is worth your time to sit and think about the world that's going on around you. 
And we talked a little bit about this in terms of meditation, but it's also, um, and maybe this is just because I have a, a slightly personal bent, but I really enjoy reading like modern sociology, like people theorizing about why culture is the way that it is and what's going on and where we're going. That's really helpful to try to understand if you are looking to try to be an ambassador to this culture, right? You wouldn't go to be a missionary in Swahili without, uh, that's a country, right? That's a, that's a language. Yeah, that's why I stopped myself. Who speaks? Swaziland, they speak, uh, oh, I would have believed you. Okay, let's just change it. <laughs> like I was listening to a pod, I'll use a different example. I was listening to a podcast um, uh, about lessons that can be learned from the Vietnam War this week. And one of the primary things that this colonel was writing about was the reality that the reason why the U.S. had such a hard time is because they didn't strive to understand the culture and that there was a major shift and what was going on in our culture in which we were still very old thinking in our method of war that we thought we could just go in and conquer something and we would be fine and everybody would, would uh, worship us for it. Instead of us going in and this guy, this is a non-Christian man saying, you have to win the hearts and the minds of the people. And that was the primary thing that the U.S. did not do in the Vietnam War, which is why we had such a hard time and inevitably had to pull out. I thought that that was an incredibly uh, beautiful point to try to understand if I'm to try to be an ambassador to the culture that's around me. I've got to try to figure out, hi, I've got to try to figure out what does it look like for me to win the hearts and minds of the culture that are around. I've got to understand what's going on and the way in which people think if I'm going to engage that thinking. Finally. No, <laughs> said a lot of our western missions just has aggravated him to no end and that's why he created this new model but he said that you know before they ever go into a country they studied and studied and studied and studied about the culture the nuances he says you can go in and in one fell swoop some cultural faux pas and you lose all credibility and he said we've had a real arrogance in the west just running into a country going to tell you about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're coming in presenting a Western Jesus to them. Yeah. Rather than coming in and finding out who they are and then allowing that Jesus to develop along their cultural Right, lines. right, right. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to stop myself from speaking more about that because I really want to talk about it, but I want to move on as well. Um, finally, the study of self. Self, the study of self. Now, this kind of goes hand in hand in terms of, the med of meditation, but ultimately the point is this. There is value in trying to figure out why you think the way you do. And there is value of then taking that developed idea, why do I think the way that I do, and exposing that idea to truth. Right? Maybe when you... Compare it to truth, you find, I'm thinking correctly. Great. But what you'll most likely find initially is that you're just as broken as the person sitting next to you, just as the person who's speaking to you right now. We're just, we're, we're broken. We don't work correctly. 
And it takes a transformation of the mind through the power of the Holy Spirit to expose our wrong ideas to truth and the beauty that comes from exposing ourselves to that truth. Studying yourself. Now, you want to be careful, and there are some people that need to be significantly careful because they're not um, emotionally and spiritually mature enough to really undergo this on their own. Uh, some people can really turn this to um, a self-abased, you know, starting to, to talk and, and focus on all of their own weaknesses and all of their own things that they do incorrectly, and it becomes more of a woe is me, and you're, not, you're no longer enjoying the freedom and the grace that comes from exposing yourself to truth. But that being said, um, trying to think about the way that you think and why you think the way that you think and why you feel the way that you feel about certain things, why you react to certain things the way that you do. That is a, that is a, what's the right word I want to say about it? It's a dangerous but beautiful enterprise to go on. I would encourage you to not necessarily do it alone, but to definitely explore that with your God. And that really leads itself well, I think, to a transition to the other discipline I'd like to talk about this evening. Because when you go through that process of exploring your own heart, inevitably what you're going to find is some sin there. Uh, and in, in one sense, it's okay that you will find that. And what I mean by that is not that it's okay that we are that we're sinners, it's okay, it's, it's normal. We're all going to find sin that still lives within us as we start to explore that with the Holy Spirit. But that being said, there's, there's a process by which we want to address that sin in our lives. Let's look at a couple of quick passages here. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.5, for the sake of time, instead of turning to them all, I'm just going to point out kind of the key components there, but you'll remember probably in 1 Timothy 2.5 um, that there is uh, one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is that? Jesus. Christ Jesus, right? Before I say anything else about confession, and in as much as I really don't like drawing lines between me and other brothers and sisters that are in other denominations, um, it is crucial that you understand when it comes to the concept of confession that ultimately the one who forgives you is Christ Jesus. The one who acts as your mediator is Christ Jesus. You don't need me to be able to confess your sin. Now that being said, there is enormous freedom, beauty, and power in allowing ourselves to corporately or with another confess our sin. And we're gonna see why as we continue to go forward. Uh, in John 20, this is the one passage I do wanna look up. John 20. So John's winding up what he's gonna write about Jesus in his gospel. And in John chapter 20, start in uh, verse 21. Jesus said to them, he said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now look at the ramifications of receiving the Holy Spirit. You who have been Christian theologians for quite some time, have you received the Holy Spirit? Don't be afraid. What have you learned? Yes. Those who have confessed Jesus and, and follow him as their Lord. They have received the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians, study Ephesians 1. If you're unclear on that idea, study Ephesians 1, okay? You have received the Holy Spirit as well. Look at the ramifications of this. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Anybody else scared by that passage? I am. I've been following Jesus a long time. That passage is scary to me. That seems like way too much power for me. Way too much power. I know myself well enough to know that that seems like way too much power. But these are words of Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about the ramifications of those as we unpack this idea. But I want those ideas floating around in your head. The part of receiving the Holy Spirit uh, seems to somehow be our relationship to others and our ability to forgive them or withhold that forgiveness. Finally, in James 5, 16, uh, we'll talk about this when we get there on our Sunday morning series through James. But uh, James makes it very clear that confession brings healing. That's the main point that I want you to pick up, that confession brings healing. Now, in James' passage, it actually talks both about spiritual and physical healing, which is a whole other conversation in and of itself. But the point is that this world is damaged, could definitely use some healing, and confession will be part of the process by which it happens. However, there are obstacles to confession, right? There are all kinds of obstacles to confession. Let's talk about them quickly. This is point two, point A. Sometimes we forget that we... The church are a community of saints and sinners. Which side of the room? Um, Well, my wife's on that side, so the line's got to be somewhere around here. (laughs) We're a community of both. We are a mixed bag, right? The scripture refers to you repeatedly, refers to you repeatedly as a saint. Embrace it. You are a saint. Scripture also repeatedly refers to you as a sinner. Don't really embrace it, but at least (laughs) accept it. (laughs) Yeah. The reality is if you have truly embraced your sainthood, you realize how much of a sinner you are. Right? You realize that you don't deserve the title of sainthood. Right? And we're a community of both. And for some reason... We still experience this shock when people confess their sin to other people. When the person that has sat next to you Sunday morning after Sunday morning singing out loud was actually struggling with sin X the entire time. And for some reason that's shocking. Oh my gosh. What? Why? We are a community of both saints and sinners. And it's not that there are some who are saints and some who are sinners. It is that we are both at the same time. Another obstacle, B, that we don't understand repentance. We don't understand repentance. 
I think a lot of the times, um, and this in my mind is a a lesson unto itself, so I'm just going to quickly share this point with you, but the, the word that's commonly translated as repent in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoeo. And metanoeo is a compound word that means essentially with or after the mind. Repentance is a mental idea more than it's a guttural idea. And so the key question is, what is the mental component of repentance? The simplest explanation that I could provide to you based on my study of it is to think the same way of your sin as God does. That's what repentance is. Repentance is to think the same way of your sin as God does. And there there are far-reaching implications of this. For those that are struggling with the reality that they're, they're just, that they even are a sinner. They're not seeing their sin like God does, like they're not even recognizing it. But then number two, they're not taking it as seriously. That sin is the separation between you and God. It is only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that you can continue to have a relationship with God without that sacrifice of Jesus. That sin would drive a forever wedge between you and God. But then to think about how destructive and and far-reaching it is, one of my favorite things that I have done in my own personal times of study, leading to times of meditation, has been to study the book of Leviticus because it scares a lot of Christians and it confuses a lot of Christians. But I love reading the passages of Leviticus to try to help me understand what was God protecting his people from? Because once you start thinking about that way, God's prohibitions and laws uh, that, that pop up, they're no longer a burden to bear once you recognize what it is that he's trying to protect you from. Repentance involves you then looking at sin the same way that God does so that you can recognize the reason why I don't want to do sin X is because sin X causes these problems. One, two, three, four, five. That's why God says that those things are bad for me. That's why I should avoid those things. He's trying to make me happy and whole by guiding me away from that thing that is going to be destructive to the very nature of who I am. We don't quite understand repentance sometimes. I want to read this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer here in point C. Our brother, and you could translate brother as brother and sister, but he's referring to brother in Christ here. Our brother has been given to us to help us. He hears the confession of our sins in Christ's stead. And he forgives our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secret of our confession as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I am going to God. This idea, to me, is shattering. Primarily because it goes against the grain of who I am. I am very content to confess my sin before God very content. I'm not as content to confess my sin to you. Can I, can I just be honest about that? Hopefully. Well, hold on. <laughs> I may not be, but I'd like to create the illusion that, that, that I am perfect. <laughs> because even Christians, we're not perfect for God. 
It, yeah, yeah. But the point is, the point that, that Bonhoeffer is trying to point out is that the, the interrelationship that we have with one another, we forget that in as much as we are an ambassador to the world out there, we are also a representation of Christ to our brother and sister. And sometimes the deepest way for somebody to experience the forgiveness of God is to experience it through you, to watch you express forgiveness and mercy for sin. They know theoretically that God expresses mercy for sin, doesn't he? Everybody knows that. That's like Christianity 101. We know that theoretically. But when I tell you my deepest, darkest brokenness, and you look at me with a smile on your face, that's a completely different experience. There are obstacles to confession, but the reason why we're talking about it as a discipline is because it, is, it does not come easy to us, yet if we will recognize the beauty that can come from it, and we grow in our ability to do it, we will be able to enjoy the grace that is there. Experiencing God through others is a very difficult concept theoretically, but when you do it and experience it, it's, it's inexplicably clear. So how do we go about doing it? What does the practice of confession look like? Point A, first, and this will sound very trite, but unfortunately it's where we have to start, being real with self and others. Keeping it real, right? There's a man that came, I'm still working um, on behalf of the police department for the school district. Um, And there was a man who came and spoke near the end of uh, last school year. And I really wanted to go hear him, uh, primarily because I thought what he was gonna talk about was manhood. Um, and I really wanted to hear from a secular perspective what manhood is looking like because manhood is a very difficult concept for our culture to process right now. He didn't talk about that at all. However, uh, indirectly, he addressed manhood. Instead, what he ended up doing was kind of running what's now being referred to as a restorative circle. And a restorative circle essentially is Um, it's not necessarily a spiritual situation, but in where people are sitting around with one another and being honest about some of the baggage that they've come to that moment with and allowing that baggage to just be aired, not addressed, just be aired. Because what he then went on to say is to talk about how difficult is it for you to wrong someone else or to assume that they are wronging you when you understand more of where they're coming from. It's a very simple concept, yet very profound when you put it into practice. When I understand, think about it from a perspective of a student right now. When I understand that this child 
has grown up in a house where he has literally never done anything that has not resulted in his father yelling at him, do I now understand when something goes slightly wrong why he screams and yells? I get that. I get that now, right? And with his ability to be real in that moment, I have a bigger picture of what's going on. He was part of, this man that spoke was part of a documentary or used in a documentary called The Masks That We Wear. And it's a really interesting thing uh, to try to, guys, you're being a little distracting. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, it, It was interesting. And the only reason I bring all of this up is that none of this was done with the point of, of, uh, trying to expose people to the truth of Christianity. I don't even think this person is a Christian. But what he recognizes is that we are in a culture where the appearance of perfection is valued, right? I will use my social media ruthlessly to express to you the perfection that is my life. And, and yet, we all know that life's not really just that like super-duper good stuff, Right? So being real is the first step that is required. Being real about those realities. But then point B, in terms of the practice of confession, even though we know that we all are broken and we all could use confession, we need to recognize that, we, that there is value in being strategic in our confession. Being strategic in our confession. A quote from Foster to try to uh, further unpack this idea. Every Christian believer can receive the confession of another. Okay? Clear point. Every Christian believer can receive the confession of another. But not every Christian believer will have sufficient empathy and understanding. There is value in me confessing my sin to you. But there is also value in being strategic about whether or not you're at a place to be able to even deal with that right? There are some people that are not going to be able to deal with that well. Maybe it's because they lack discretion, right? One of the things that they're dealing with is their own need for importance. And so now that they have the secret knowledge about your darkness, they may use that against you in order to enhance their own ability to feel great about themselves, right? That person's probably not at a good spot to be able to help you experience the grace of God. Being strategic is still worth doing in the recognition that not every Christian believer is going to yet be at a point of having empathy and understanding. But then when it comes down to once we've recognized those key components, what does it then look like? And I think you could probably divide it up into, um, I originally wrote on your notes three steps, and then I realized that there was a fourth step that I was missing, and I didn't go back and write that it's four steps. So it's four steps, sorry. Four steps to confession. First, the examination of conscience. The examination of conscience. We have to invite God to reveal areas in which we are outside of his design. And that can come through times of meditation. That can come through times of study. But it also, uh, it, it it needs to come through exposure of ourselves, both to scripture and to others, right? To allow it, you, you have to have a relationship with other Christians, a real relationship with other Christians who are capable of speaking into your life a little bit and saying, 
I'm not really sure if I understand what it is that you just said right there. Or I'm not really sure that you meant to do that that way. Or are you, do you know how you were just perceived based off of what just happened over there? Somebody that can actually call you on what you have done and said and thought and be able to kind of experience it with that person. That's going to have, that examination of conscience ought not to be done just alone. It is done alone, but it's also done in community. Step two, and this is important, especially for some people more than others, but step two is the step of sorrow. And by sorrow, I don't necessarily mean an emotional expression, although it can have an emotional expression with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with an emotional expression. But there has to be a reality, a reality check of that sin. There needs to be recognition of how that sin is falling short of God's design. We've now examined the conscience, and we found the area where God has identified that this is something on which we need to work, and we need to express a moment in some way, shape, or form of why this moment is causing damage. And we need to understand this is what repentance starts to look like, right? This is where that repentance idea starts to come in. Now I'm allowing my mind to wrap around how God sees this sin, and sees the, the danger that it is to me were I to let it continue. And this is where it's important to understand the difference between sorrow for the consequence of sin and sorrow for my sin. Right, and we're not talking about sorrow for the consequence of the sin, right? I mean, sorrow of the consequences, it, that's, a, that's a wonderful tool that God uses to reveal to us our sin is the consequences, Right. Um, and sometimes there is a, a necessary experience of those consequences, but we're not talking about just feeling bad for getting caught. We're talking about looking at our sin as the deadly cancer that it is and experiencing that with God. The next step then needs to be some type of determination to avoid sin. This is a natural outflow, right? Because now that you have examined your conscience with the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, you are now thinking correctly about your sin, the natural expression of that is going, so what do we got to do to make this change? What do we got to do to go in a new direction? And this will involve a practical examination. What, what are the means by which I'm sinning, right? If it's a struggle with... Um, if it's a, a struggle with flaunting your material possessions, right? Maybe that's something that you can uh, lock up in a closet for a while. Maybe it's time to sell those things off. Maybe, maybe you don't need to post a picture of everything that you do on social media in order to get people. I'm not saying that that's inherently wrong. My point is, once you've experienced... God telling you that you're doing that in order to increase your approval rating with others and increase your status with others. Now we've got a sin problem that needs to be addressed and we need to look practically at what are the means by which uh, I am making those errors and how can I change those means? And then prayerfully moving forward is the second part of this determination to avoid sin, prayerfully moving forward. How are you going to open yourself up to God's power in this area? And this can take all kinds of different forms and and ought to, but the point is, I want to say the words again, prayerfully moving forward. The point is this. If you're anything like me, 
slightly type A to you know, high-ranging high type A, you will feel like this is something that you can attack head-on. That now I'm going to change my sin. I'm going to change all of these conditions. And what will inevitably happen is that God will allow you to fail again. Guarantee it. Because this is something that needs to be done with God because God is the one ultimately who is changing you. You are not changing you. You are opening yourself up to God's power as it changes you. And if you are driving forward trying to change everything yourself without addressing God and how his power is addressing you, you will be trying to do it on your own and inevitably you will fail again and again and again. That's an important part of the lesson. That may not sink in right now. Just file it away at some point. That'll click a light bulb in. I realize, though, that there's point four. Point four is necessary because point four is joy. Confession begins in sorrow, but it ends in joy. There is celebration in the forgiveness of sins because it results in a genuinely changed life. Friends, what differentiates those who embrace the discipline of confession uh, and yet are still fun to be around and the monk who is persistently whipping himself because of his own sin. The, the main difference, right, is that one of them is still a relatable person that's still kind of useful to society. The other one is spending too much time worrying about his own problem. But the reality is, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, my friends. We have to enjoy the forgiveness. Yes, there is appropriate time that we must spend in understanding our sin and the depths of our depravity. But Christianity's message does not end there. The gospel is good news because it doesn't end in the darkness of that which we are as humans. Instead, it ends with the power of God and the joy that that instills in our life. We have to experience that joy. We embrace the forgiveness that comes as a result of confession, not the condemnation that comes with confession. What's that? Absolutely. So a final note here, because uh, we've talked a lot about you being the confessor. Let's talk real briefly about what does it look like for you to receive the confession of another in terms of being useful from that side, okay? First, let's talk about the character that you need to have. The character of one who will be useful to his brother and sister in confession will have a character of compassion will have a character of confidentiality, right? You need to be somebody that doesn't just smear everyone around town. You're going to have to have the character of common sense, knowing that the response to sin is not always the exact same thing given the circumstances. You might even have to have a sense of humor, Right? Because remember that the point of confession at the end of it is joy. And I'm not saying that you need to receive that confession flippantly. But at the same time, you recognize that being that God looks upon you through his son at all times, he's looking at you 
with a smile and not a frown, right? Because he sees the righteousness of his son when he sees you. He sees the righteous version of you because you now have Christ's righteousness. As a result, humor might be appropriate given certain circumstances. That's what the character would look like. What knowledge must you have? First, you probably need to know a little bit about yourself and how you have experienced forgiveness. Right? Remember Jesus' parable? I'm not going to say first. This is probably the main point I want to make. Remember Jesus' parable, right, of the one who's been forgiven much versus the one who's been forgiven little? You have to explore with Christ how much you have been forgiven for you to be useful as one who can receive the confession of others. And being real with others about how Christ has forgiven you in those is the only opportunity they're going to ever see to, hey, this is a person that I can trust with my darkness. Third, I would, I would venture to say that it would be almost impossible to enter into a time in which you are receiving the confession of somebody else without some type of prayer for discernment. And specifically, what I mean by this, a prayer for discernment, would be what type of healing is necessary. Right? When somebody is, people experience and people sin for a variety of reasons. Right? And God wants to take them to a place of healing in that sin. God wants to repair that aspect of his relationship with those people. You need to address your God and need to ask for his wisdom and discernment and understanding what, what is this person really needing from God right now? Why is it that they are falling short of the mark? And what does it look like for them to receive healing in that specific area? You know, we could... Do we need a specific example, or do you get that idea? Get it? Okay, people are saying they get it. Um, point four. Active listening is better than counseling. Active listening is better than counseling. And there are books about active listening, so I won't spend a ton of time trying to educate you on this. That would be a, a topic of study that would be worth it understanding active listening. They're not coming to you because they need you to counsel them. They're coming to you because they've already recognized before God that they are broken. Your moment, your goal in that moment is to be expressing the grace of God to them. You don't need to be guiding them and counseling them. That can come later. You need to enjoy the moment that they have trusted you enough to be a conduit of God's mercy. And you need to understand what it looks like just to listen to what they're dealing with. So in that way, maybe asking, if you're not familiar with active listening, I do encourage you to understand what that means, but just some basic concepts. Make sure that you're um, asking more questions than you are providing more answers. Um, make sure that you're not the one who's talking the most. And let me, let me give you a very valuable tool. Being okay with the, ready? You need to look at me. Being okay with the, hmm. 
it is so hard sometimes not to say something, especially in that really difficult moment. Be okay with the silence. You're, you're just, yeah, you're, you're there to receive, not to give. Yeah. And you are, you, you need to sometimes be okay with there being a little bit of pause in the conversation, especially after something huge has just been there. And you are inclined to provide the big answer and the big response. The big response should probably be controlled and minimized to, hmm, Learn more about active listening. Finally, recognize that you are being a conduit for God's mercy. If you finish with your time of confession and walk away without somehow readdressing God through prayer, you're kind of missing the closed loop because you can't forgive this person. You are being... I'm going to keep using that word, a conduit. You are being the pipeline for God's mercy, but it's God's mercy. You you need to make sure that that time closes with readdressing God and turning them back to the forgiveness that that God provides them in Christ. I will be honest with you and say that, that this is this discipline of confession is very difficult to do. But that's why it's probably worth us expressing the time and the effort to do it. Uh, Think of how authentic and deep our church community would feel were we to practice this with one another on a more regular basis. I would encourage us to do that. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully this sermon about the Old Testament, and I can't remember exactly who or whose which ones it was, but the holy men of God who had not committed sins, who had not turned to other gods, who so on and so on and so on, stood in the gap and prayed for their people, and God forgave their people because that person, that righteous person, is that a picture of Christ? Is that, and I guess, if you think, I just thought about that, that that's a picture of Christ. Being the forgiveness for us. That God put the sin on Him to forgive us. Uh, but do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? God has God has always liked, and this is something I still have a very hard time understanding about God. But God has always liked using the frailty of human beings to express His greatness to other human beings, um, and so that has manifested in a variety of ways, from the priesthood um, in the Old Testament to then being told that New Testament believers are now the, they are the priests, uh, and, and the relationship that we have with one another in which we represent God's character to one another um, has been a constant theme throughout Scripture. So I think confession is a, a, a deep representation of that idea, certainly. Yeah. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll be done. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your wisdom. Uh, We seek both of them through these disciplines that we've talked about. God, give us a, 
an understanding and a desire to pursue truth and to employ it to the world around us. And at the same time, let us do it with the humility and the recognition that we are powerless without you working through us, that we are weak and yet you love us in our weakness and express your strength through it. We give ourselves to you for these purposes. Amen.